feels so good to, to walk through these doors and to see your faces. Uh, this is a real special place. Uh, our, our family, we were here for uh, a good few years before we went to Calgary a little while ago, and uh, it's wonderful to be back here this morning. And if you guys are, uh, if you're here visiting today, or if you're here for six months or a year, for a couple of years, uh, I hope God really blesses your time uh, in Banff. It, it's, a, it's a great spot. So uh, this morning, what we're going to do is, uh, it's a question that I had very early as, as, as a new Christian, where I said, wait a minute, if, if I'm reading this book, and this is about, you know, uh, Moses and Abraham and Daniel and David, and God is with this, this people group, and we're reading their stories. We're, we're in Nehemiah and excited about, you know, God, save your people. And then the Messiah comes, and many turn to him, but many don't. Well, well, but what about the others? And I was so confused. Like, God, if you sent Jesus as the Messiah of Israel first, why don't the majority of them know you, love you? In fact, many of them are terrified of you or hostile against you. I don't get it, Lord. And the beautiful thing is that the Bible actually has great answers to that. Uh, Romans chapter 11, in, in specific, really clearly lays it out. And unfortunately, the text is often misunderstood. So what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to go through it with you. We'll go verse by verse, and we will read it as, as face value as we can. Like, like kids reading a, a text, not expecting any hidden, you know, things. We'll just read it, and what does it say? And it's a Praise you, God, for, for what's ahead. So before that, though, I'll ask Rebecca if you could uh, roll that clip. We're going to watch a little testimony to set the mood, and then if you could uh, turn your Bibles to Romans 11. We'll, we'll get started. So I found a job working as a drug detailer. I would explain pharmaceuticals to the physicians. And I went into a doctor's office, and the doctor asked me, is this what you want to do with the, for the rest of your life? I really thought about that and said, no, this is not what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to change the world. I really want to be a person that would bring justice to this world. So I decided I was going to go to school and become a lawyer. While I was in school, I decided also that I wanted to see America. I wanted to go off to see America, as Paul Simon and Garfunkel said. And so uh, I traveled cross-country to look for America. We were pretty well off as a family, and so outwardly I had everything a person could ask for. And yet within my very being, within my very heart, was a restlessness. Uh, uh, I was depressed. I was frustrated. I, I was looking for peace. Um, I never had any long-term happiness. I didn't know where happiness could be found. I looked for it all kinds of places. And probably the thing that drove me most to, to uh, distraction, to, to be completely upset, was the lack of justice in this world. I was really upset by that. Uh, that's why I wanted to become a lawyer, because I thought that maybe through law I could bring justice to this world. So I'm traveling cross-country to see America come to this small town in Wisconsin. Actually, it wasn't that small. La Crosse, Wisconsin, right on the Mississippi River. I decided I was going to spend the night there, hang out, and make a mighty crossing of the Mississippi River. Jewish kid from New York crossing the Mississippi River. Going to the, to the city, and there are a lot of bars in this town, and 
I was asked to jam with this band, playing my harmonica, New Yorker, playing blues harmonica. And there was a girl there, just absolutely beautiful, blonde hair, blue eyes, a uh, uh, Wisconsin Dairy Queen. That's uh, all I could think of. I mean, she was just beautiful. And moreover, she was fascinated with me. She thought I was great. Every story I told, she laughed at. She was just wonderful, um, kind, gracious. And then she introduced me to her friends. They were all Jesus freaks. Jesus. So these Christians started telling me about Jesus. That was the last thing in the world I wanted to hear. I mean, as far as I was concerned, anybody who loved Jesus hated Jews. And I would, I love to argue. I was going to be a lawyer, right? So I came up with every argument why Jesus couldn't possibly be the only way. And with every argument, they'd show me the Bible there was where this was so and this was so. And finally, I said, you know what? I'm Jewish. I figured that would end the discussion. He said, you're Jewish. Hallelujah. Our Messiah's Jewish. Our Bible's Jewish. If it weren't for the Jewish people, we'd have a Bible or a Messiah. I'd never had a response like that before. So as these guys are sharing, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I was trained in Judaism. I mean, I, I, I knew the, the, the prayers and I mean, I, I was bar mitzvahed in the Orthodox tradition. And yet here were Gentiles who knew more about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, more about my God than I did. I thought to myself, what are these Gentiles doing with my God? They were on a first-name basis with him, it seemed. And that just confused me. So they said to me, you ask God, the God of Israel, if Jesus isn't the Messiah. I just wanted to get out of the conversation. I had enough of these guys. So I said, okay. And I muttered something under my breath as I was walking out the door. And I figured that would be that. Well, I went from there to uh, continue on my journey cross country. And I just couldn't get that girl out of my mind. A couple of weeks later, I was in California. I, would, I figured, boy, I would find more girls. There was never anyone like her. I had to go back. So I get to Wisconsin, and I reconnect with Joanne and her friends, and they start sharing with me about the New Testament. And actually, I began reading in the book of Matthew. And as I read Matthew, I was just blown away it begins with, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David. The more I read Matthew, the more Jewish it appeared. I mean, I always thought that the New Testament was like, you know, it was just craziness. And certainly not related to anything Jewish. And yet... Uh, Every page I was reading was Jewish. For the first time, I came to realize that, that Jesus 
was not Catholic. I had always thought he was Catholic. And as I read this, I, I, I was just amazed. So as I read in Matthew, I saw in Jesus, first of all, that he was Jewish and he was dealing with injustice. And yet, as horribly he was being treated, he was kind, he was gracious, and yet he continued to love. I was blown away by that. I'm looking for answers, I'm looking for life, I'm looking for love. I come to Wisconsin, come to La Crosse, Wisconsin, and I find the answer to both. And both of them begin with the letter J. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, and Joanne, a beautiful blonde. And now I have both. Since I've come to this relationship with God through Jesus, I've experienced incredible peace, incredible joy. I also have come to understand what life is all about, and I'm able to share it with others. And I'm seeing the joy that I have is transferable to others, and I'm seeing other lives changed. Wasn't that a great testimony? I love how he brings the, the two things together at the end. Joanne, the beautiful blonde, and Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Great. Okay, so flip to Romans chapter 11. So Romans 11, remember, every word that we will look at today, every single word is God-breathed, is inspired, and errant. And every word counts. Every word matters. So Paul has been talking in Romans 9 and Romans 10, uh, already about what about the Jewish people. The whole book of Romans is expanding. What is the gospel? How are we saved? What has God done in the world and what is God doing in the world? But then the pinnacle about what about the Jewish people arrives in this chapter, Romans 11. So Paul starts off and he says, verse 1, I say then, has God rejected his people? And what's his answer? May it never be. So he's saying, if anything up until this point has made you think God has done with his people, no, let me clarify. You misunderstood me. No, he is not done with his people. For I too... Am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. He's saying, Look at me. I'm me talking to Paul. I'm Jewish. I'm crazy about Jesus. He is not done with his people. And he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And he says, This is not even a new idea. Let's think about what the Bible says. He says, and or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. 
Now, you remember this is a story where uh, Elijah has the, the famous contest with the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel, and, uh, and, and he flees from wicked Jezebel, and he thinks, that's it, I, I'm, I'm a goner. Like, I, I'm the last one, I'm the last believer, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be toast soon. Well, he says, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left. Imagine how that would have felt when he thinks, I'm the last. Imagine if you thought you were the last Christian in the world. He thinks, I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? God said, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God's response is, Elijah, you think you're alone? Oh, no, I've got a people. I have preserved a people for myself 7,000 in those days. And so in the same way, verse 5, Paul says, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time, so right in the days of Paul there, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. A remnant, a small group reserved and set aside that no matter what happens in the craziness of the world around, they're in the palm of God's hand and he will not let them go. And so Paul is saying that was like that in the days of Elijah, that is like that today as well. So Paul is evidence, and, he's, and the remnant is evidence. Now, think about um, different names, just, just different people in the Bible. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, right, that, that knew the Lord, Jewish, and they knew the Lord. Think about Apollos. Think about Mary Magdalene. Think about Timothy, John the Baptist, Barnabas, Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, Lazarus, raised from the dead. Think about the, the, all the apostles that are Jewish. Think about the 120 gathered in the upper room after the crucifixion. Think about the 3,000 added to the church on the day of Pentecost. Thousands of believers in the day of Paul and going viral, going out, spreading from, to Egypt, to Turkey, to Greece, to, to Italy. Uh, it couldn't be contained. These were Jewish believers. These were a remnant even in Paul's day. And we've seen that throughout history as well. Uh, it's really neat when you look it up. Every century has had God has raised sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and revealed Jesus to them. Verse 6, the gospel. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. I love that, that Paul puts that in there. At any, any opportunity, he gets the gospel in there. If it's by grace, which is undeserved kindness... It's no longer on the basis of works or what you do. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So verse 7, What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest... So look at verse 7 in your Bibles. So he's saying, up till now, there's a remnant. He says, I'm an example of it. And there's a whole bunch of other Jewish people who know and love the Lord. And he says, but... The question's not answered, what about the rest, right? Because still, the great majority of the Jewish people in his day, and I'd argue in our day today too, the great majority don't know and love Jesus like, like you and me do, at least not yet. So in verse 7, he transitions. He says, those that were chosen obtained it, and the rest, what, what happened to the rest? Look in your Bibles, verse 7, what happened to the rest? Hardened. They were hardened. Who did that? Look at verse 8. Just as it is written, God gave them. If, if you mark up your Bibles, that's a good one to underline. God gave them a spirit of stupor, 
eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. So the rest, not the remnant, the rest, what happened to them? They were hardened. And who did it? God. You might be saying, like, but God, why would you do that? They're your people. God doesn't do anything without reason. God always has a purpose for his glory and our good. So we're about to find out why did God do that. And it's exciting to think, if the hardening was them, then, oh man, that might last forever, right? If the hardening was something cultural, oh gosh. But if the hardening is God, the God who hardens can remove it as well. He is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. In verse 11, Paul says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Or in other words, they didn't fall permanently forever, no hope, did they? And he answers himself and says, may it never be. But by their transgression, right, by their, their not receiving Jesus, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. They reject Jesus in the most part, and the result is, is mind-blowing. You and me, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, are invited to come home to our maker, to our, our, our savior. It's, it's the craziest twist you would never have expected that their rejection means the rest of the world gets light. The rest of the world gets to come home. And there's a purpose. Look at what that purpose is in verse 11. At the end of the verse, to make them jealous. That's why I wanted to show you this testimony here today. This is good jealousy. This is not the, the kind of sinful jealousy that you and I have that flares up and causes trouble. This is where you say, what is that? Where did you get that? I want that. I can have that? That, that, that good news that to your ear where you can have this incredible thing that God is doing. And so when, when you and me, in our new relationships with Jesus Christ, have this old life before him, this new life after, with him, and in him, as, as we're on a, on a first-name basis with God, as that man said, it's very attractive. It's, it, it's very, it makes, it's a curiosity about it that God has designed to make Jewish people who just know you at your work, in your life, in your different circles, to say, what is that? Tell me about that. And then you're ready to say, well, let me tell you what happened to me. In verse 12, 12 and 15, there's, now Paul is building up towards what's ahead here. Verse 12, now, if their transgression, again, the rejection of the Lord, is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Or if you've got the ESV open, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So he's building on what he said. He said, that worst thing ever in the world where they rejected God, if that actually gave the gospel to you and me, imagine for a sec, what will it mean if they turn to the Lord? If, if a bad thing led to a good thing, imagine a great thing. What kind of amazing thing that that would lead to? And this is not some theoretical thing, because look again at the key words here. Verse 12, not how much more would their fulfillment be, but what word is used? How much more will their fulfillment be? A certainty. 
that it is ahead, that their full inclusion will happen. But in verse 13, but I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. And verse 15, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world. What a great way to put it, eh? Their rejection of Jesus is the reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance be but... And then what are the key words used? What would their acceptance of Jesus be? Life from the dead. Now, there's a little bit of uh, two schools of thought on what this means here. Some will say, well, this is like an Ephesians chapter 2 kind of thing. You were dead in your sins. And then God made you alive in Christ. And so in the same way that you were dead in your sins, spiritually speaking, and God made you alive in Christ, that the Jewish people who don't believe in the Lord today are dead in their sins, and when they come, when they accept the Lord, they will be alive in Christ. Um, that's, that's possible, because that, that is a reality. I, I affirm uh, Ephesians chapter 2, spot on. That's what's happening. However, others say, and including a commentary I love, uh, edited by D.A. Carson, called uh, the New Testament commentary on the use of the Old Testament, they say that these theologians see it and they see the resurrection on that last day. Like 1 Corinthians 15 discusses on that last day when your name will be called and if you are dead, you will rise. And if you're still alive at that time, you will be transformed and changed. The resurrection is a great hope that's ahead. And really, what more literal description of the resurrection other than life from the dead. I think that that's the best explanation, especially because of verse 25 and 26, which we're going to get to in a sec. So if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, now I want to tell you about a little something here that it's not super well known in our culture. It's called uh, tree grafting or plant grafting. And Rebecca's got a photo for us where um, fruit tree farmers uh, well, do this amazing thing. I, I can't believe it, act, it works. They, they'll take one tree of some kind of fruit, and then they will cut off branches of a different kind of fruit, and they'll cut a little slit in the tree, they'll stick it in, they'll bind it up with some kind of rope, and they'll just leave it, and it'll actually form and grow and become part of that tree, but still produce the fruit of what the original thing was. Uh, there's a tree in New York City where uh, an artist, he put together, it's called the, the Tree of Forty Fruit, uh, there's 40 different kinds of fruit in one tree that blooms all different kinds of color in the spring and then has all different kinds of fruit that you can go pick from in, uh, in the summer. It's, it's incredible. And this is kind of, this is new for us in our culture, but this was, this was done all the time back in the day. Uh, and so the example he uses here is of olive trees. So he says, picture that olive tree like it would be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, if some of the branches were broken off. So picture a branch on, on the normal olive tree, natural olive tree, broken off, lying on the ground. And it says, if some were broken off, and you, so you and me, Gentiles, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and become partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. So there are branches that were originally there that were broken off. Some that were broken off, they're lying there on the ground. 
you and me were from some other wild tree, not from this garden, and we were broken off over there, and we were put into this original tree that we think of roots of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob going up to Nehemiah and Ezra, and then Peter and Paul and Barnabas, and then suddenly Ernie, like right in there. This, this is what's going on here. But there could be a temptation because you and I are sinners. There could be a temptation to get kind of cocky about it, kind of arrogant about it. And if we see Jewish people who don't believe in the Lord and say, you had your chance and you were broken off, why? Well, to make room for me. And Paul says, don't do that, don't do that. And this is what he says. Look at verse 19. But you will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Which is like, imagine how highly can you think of yourself? Uh, quite right. They were broken off, but why? Look in verse 20. Why were they broken off? For their unbelief. Only reason. Not because God doesn't love them. Not because God is done with them. Not because they messed up too many times. For their unbelief, they were broken off, lying on the ground. But you stand by your faith, so do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. So that's a stern warning here. He's saying, remember how you got there. You were not the people of God. You were not in this original tree. But by God's grace, Jesus Christ died in your place as your substitute. And when you put your faith in him, you said, Lord, God, I won't make it without you. He became the punishment. He took the punishment of the sin that you deserve. And on that last day, when the wrath of God is poured out, it will not be on you. There is no wrath. It was poured out on the Son of God, sent because of the love God has for you. So remember, that is how you and I are in that tree. There's nothing to be arrogant about. And verse 23, I want to memorize this one. Uh, my wife and I love to travel in Israel. I love to have this memorized. And, and as I have an opportunity next to talk to any person who's Jewish there, I want these words to come back to my mind. Verse 23, and they also, remember, the unbelieving Jews, they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. They, that, those branches that look like they're dead on the ground, oh no, they're not dead. They can be picked up and put back in if they turn to Jesus. This is all the reason to take every opportunity that you, you can to, to share with Jewish people about the Lord. Uh, one little thing here too, there, there, there are some groups, um, they're called anti-missionaries. They, they, they train Jewish people to know how, what to say to a Christian to try and like debunk Jesus or whatever. And one of their ideas is they say, the only Jewish people who actually come to the Lord, they're, um, uh, they're, they're not smart, they're not educated, or, you know, elderly, like they, you know, Christians pray on the weak and the elderly kind of thing. And so this group that did this testimony, they, what they did is they, they interviewed Jewish businessmen, politicians, professionals, doctors, lawyers that know and love the Lord. And uh, so it's called I Met Messiah. You can find them online. They're up to 113 testimonies now, one at a time of lives changed. And the common denominator of it all is they, they haven't, it's not that they've met Jewish people who love the Lord, it's they've met 
people like you and me who love the Lord and, and, a, and a light switch got, got flicked. So, so please use that well when God puts people in your life uh, from there. So verse 24, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more? And now look at that key word there. Is it how much more would these who? No, it's how much more will. How much more will these who are natural branches be grafted in into their own olive tree? God says it's natural for a Jewish person to be grafted back in. Now, Paul, this, these are the two very exciting verses, 25 and 26. There's a lot of debate about them. I'm not sure why, but let's look at them clearly here. Verse 25, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. So there's a mystery, and he's about, and that's the cool thing. Sometimes when, when we hear the word mystery, we go, ooh, mystical, what is it? And, you know, no one really knows and all that. Usually when the Bible talks about mystery, just read the next verse or two or three or paragraph. Uh, the mystery is almost always, and this is what it is, and we're given it. So I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That uh, Now look in your, in your Bibles here. What happened? A partial hardening. A partial hardening. So remember back in verse 7, 8, when we, when we saw there was a hardening done by who? By God? We get a little more information now. A partial hardening. What does partial mean? Not forever. Not permanent. Not completely. That's an exciting, exciting word to see in our Bibles. A partial hardening has happened to who? To Israel. Until. So if you mark your Bibles, that's a great word to circle and circle and circle and underline. Until. What does until mean? It means there's an expiry date. It means that it will not be forever. So all his like, how much will, 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 not would, but will, and now he says until. Until what? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Or the NLT puts it, the fullness of the Gentiles comes to Christ. So God and his great love and his great plan has been pulling a people for himself from every tribe and nation and tongue and creating this huge kingdom of his, of, of Jews and Gentiles, new life in Christ. But the Bible says here that there will be a day when the last Gentile comes to the Lord, when that's it, when it is the great fullness is done. And then when that day comes and that last Gentile comes to the Lord, what does the Bible say in verse 26? And so all Israel will be saved. So that partial hardening will be removed the day that the last Gentile comes to the Lord. Now theologians, that, that some theologians believe that this is at the end, that, that, that that's the great wrap-up of everything, and I'd say the great beginning of all the really exciting matters ahead. Now look at the, the just as it is written, verse 26, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So there are three perspectives on what's happening in verse 25, 26 here that I, I got to give it to you because you're going to hear them a lot. The first one 
it, it's held by a lot of men that I love and respect, a lot of theologians that are very brilliant, very smart. And th- what they say is that in verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved, they say Israel here, it doesn't really mean Israel, it means the church. This means the body of Christ. And then they'll say, you know, Romans 9 says that not all Israel is Israel, and they'll, they'll connect a couple other things, and they'll say, and therefore, this is the church. You know, we, we are the ones in Christ, we are the ones that will be saved. And that's a, that's a strange way to read in the Bible. Because, like, follow me here. Verse 25, a partial hardening has happened to who? To Israel. So if it, Israel can't be the Jewish people who don't believe in one verse, and then suddenly be the church in the next verse, without any explanation going on, that we don't read anything in, nor- in normal day, in our, your normal life like that. that, that that's all the opposite of the context. And the church doesn't have a partial hardening on it, right? We're, we're redeemed, we're in the Lord. The, the plain reading of the context here is Jews and Gentiles, and particularly the Jews that, that don't believe what about them. So, and then, and then if you say, okay, well, all right, tw- yeah, 25 does kind of look like unbelieving Jews, Israel, but, but that's all. Well, no, look at the other end. Let's sandwich the verse 26 here for Israel. Um, in that quote from the Old Testament, he will remove ungodliness from who? From Jacob. Like, just in case we were to be tempted to kind of spiritualize Israel and say, oh, now it's the church, the body of Christ, uh, Israel's not even used again. Now Jacob is used. The other, the the other name of Israel, the 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 final promise was given to him that that through him all the families of the world would be blessed. The Messiah would come. So we're given this Jacob, and then if that's not enough, look at verse twenty-eight. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, so they being Israel, are enemies for your sake. So the church is enemies of the gospel? Like, no way. It just it falls apart. That the only way I believe that somebody could arrive in verse 26 and say that Israel is the church is they've been taught that. Someone told them that. They read it in a commentary. They heard it from a seminary prof. They, they heard it online. I don't think anybody would read the Bible and say, oh, I think suddenly this is the church. And so that's why I would encourage anybody, if you hold that position, please just read through this as face value as you can and see this is talking about the unbelieving Jewish people. Now, there's a second theory people will say, you're right, no, it can't be the church, but it's the remnant. It's the, the people who are Jewish, who believe in Jesus, from the cross all the way to the return of Christ. It's every Jewish person who comes to the Lord, comes to the Lord, comes to the Lord, and they're added to this remnant that Paul has already talked about, like in the days of Elijah, like in the days of Paul. There's a problem with that. In verse 7, Paul has been talking about the remnant, but then he switches and he says, what about the rest? And then we find out the rest were hardened by God. And everything from that point onward has not been about the remnant. Everything from that point onward, from seven onward, right up to this verse, has been, what about those who don't believe? Right up to the point of calling them enemies of the gospel. So the remnant is not a good fit either. And finally, I believe the the most accurate reading of this is a future salvation, rescue, redemption of the unbelieving Jewish people at a particular time in a particular place. I think that's the cleanest, clearest reading. I think it's for the faithfulness of God to the promises of his people. And 
if all we had was Romans 11, we could have a lot of discussion, but the beauty is that we don't only have Romans 11. We have the whole counsel of God, and the Old Testament is full of the prophets talking about the, the final day when God's people will be redeemed and rescued and restored. There's a lot, of, a lot about the nations, too, being rescued and brought into to light, but there's so much to expect that's ahead. So I, I want to bring you guys to that here today. So um, maybe you leave your finger in Romans 11 and flip over to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. And that is uh, that's about, about halfway, halfway in your Bible. One of the last books of the Old Testament. There's a super cool story there that you've got to see. So Zechariah 14. So, Zechariah chapter 12, 13, and 14 are, haven't happened yet. The, these are on par with much of the book of Revelation, much of end of Isaiah, much of end of Daniel. They're, although they're in the Old Testament, they're telling us about the end. Specifically, this chapter talks about the return of Jesus Christ, which has not happened yet. One day will. And chapter 12, 13, and 14, they're telling the same story. They're not telling the, uh, three different stories, but they're telling the same one again and again from different angles. And it's about a final invasion of Israel, of the capital, of Jerusalem, a very dark time, a very bad time that's ahead, and a great, great divine rescue that, that will take place. So to set the scene here, um, let's look at verse, uh, chapter 14, the first couple of verses here. Behold, a day is coming, for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. Verse 2, for I, now this I, I like to circle that, this is God talking. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. This again is like, this is the beauty of reading the Bible. Like God does stuff that you wouldn't think, you wouldn't expect. Who draws in the nations to invade Israel? God does. You're like, why, God, why would you do that? It's, but it's clear, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. The, the defenses will fall. They will not work. Maybe they'll work for a little while, but they will fall. The city will be captured. The houses plundered. The city's occupied. The women ravished. A horrible time. And half of the city exiled. Half of the people... Yahweh, then Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. This is amazing. God draws the nation, says, come, invade my land, invade my people. And they come and they that it's them doing it. And they conquer and they say, look at what we're doing, you know, for the glory of ourselves or whatever. And then who beats them back and defends his people? Yahweh does. God does. And then in verse 4, in that day, what does it say will land or will stand on the Mount of Olives? His feet. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, 
which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. So do you remember uh, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus, uh, he, he ascends, he goes up into, he's with the disciples, the apostles, he goes up into the cloud, and the clouds kind of cover him up, and then the angels are there, and they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. So Jesus, at one point, on the Mount of Olives, with his feet on the Mount of Olives, went up and up and up and up up until the sky and the clouds covered. And then we're told he will come back in just the same way you saw him leave. And what I see is, you know those movies that will do like the instant replay, and you'll see the guy running backwards to whatever? In the same way that Jesus did that, one day we should expect the sky to rip open, the clouds to rip open, and riding on the clouds, the Son of Man coming in great power, and coming where? To the Mount of Olives. And in, in Zechariah, when it says that he stands on the Mount of Olives, it then says that the Mount of Olives splits east and west, and create, or north and south, and creates a valley east and west, and the Jewish people in Jerusalem are able to run through it and escape through it. And I just picture this great slam down of Yahweh's feet on uh, the mountain, splitting it. And then the Jewish people, as they're rescued, and this incredible thing has happened, and that they're being, uh, the, the Savior has arrived, what do they see? And that's the cool thing about these three chapters telling the same story in different angles. Look at chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. What do they see? Now remember, Yahweh has come back at the darkest hour. This is looking like it's worse than the Holocaust. But Yahweh has returned. He saves his people and in verse, chapter 12, verse 9 of Zechariah, And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come.
the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. So Nathan is a descendant of David. So like generations of Jewish people there in Jerusalem torn apart by what they, who they're seeing there. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites, a grandson of Levi, by itself and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain. That's key. Not all Jews of all time, but those that are there that remain at the end, that survive to the end, who see the Lord and they're broken in mourning, great mourning. Every family by itself and their wives by themselves. So picture this. Have you ever maybe seen that? You visited a church and someone is just, maybe they've been living away from the Lord for a while and, and this it's, it's time to come home. God is just calling them home. And they're just broken and sobbing. And they just realize, Lord, I have messed up. And God, you love me so much. And I, I want you, God. I want to come home again. Well, picture a nation now doing this. A nation on a single day after centuries of running from the Lord, of hostility towards the Lord and his people, realizing that it's him having the hardening gone, the Spirit poured out on them, being just physically rescued from the whole world that said, we've come to annihilate you. And they are now turned to, in repentance, I'd say. And then look at verse 1 of chapter 13. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David, and who else? For the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And what is this fountain, this cleansing? What is this fountain being opened for? Check it out in your Bibles. For sin and for impurity. So let's bring all of this together. Great divine rescue. They look at the rescuer. The Spirit's poured out. They realize who he is. The one they pierced. Their broken repentance. They're just torn for him. And then... Sovereignly, God opens a fountain for their sin. He deals with their sin. And it's Jesus Christ who's right there doing it. There's no other different kind of gospel. The Lord returns, and these Jews of that day are rescued. Now, you might say, well, how do you know, Nick, that this has not, uh, not happened at another time? Well, I wish we had time to get into that, that. But chapter 14, the last half of the chapter, read it at home, and you're going to see that there are things that happen there that history's never seen. Christ is back. There's mandatory worship for him on Zion and Jerusalem. The Gentiles are worshiping him there. There's a mandatory worship. Just history has never seen what plays out in this story, this narrative. This is for sure the second coming. And when Jesus comes back, he will never leave again. There will not be a third and a fourth and a fifth. When Christ comes back, he's back for good permanently to set everything right. So this Zechariah, this, this is a long time ago. The, the Jewish people have been waiting for this. Uh, I'd say as Christians, we should be looking at this going, I can't wait. I'm waiting for this too. And if you flip back with me to Romans 11, we'll we'll wrap this up here real quick here for you. So Romans 11, imagine with that in the back of your mind with Zechariah, when, when God, when will you rescue your people? Paul is able to say that other than the remnant, there's a great thing ahead. At the fullness of the Gentiles, the partial hardening will be removed. And that although they look like enemies of the gospel now, in verse 28, the other half of it, but for the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. 
For, you know how often the Bible, God will say, after David, he'll say, uh, I shouldn't do this for you, but because of David, my servant. David, my, the one that knew me. David, the one who knew my heart. For his sake, I'll, I'm going to keep blessing you. I'll keep you there. How much more for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God made promises to them that will happen. And then verse 29, often taken out of context, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Uh, we often look at that as in terms of spiritual gifts, and we say the, the gifts and the callings are irrevocable. If you were given this gift, you will have it forever. Um, the, the context of this, the gifts given to the people of Jacob and the calling of God, that calling of your mind, are irrevocable. There's nothing that can take the Jewish people out of the hands of the Lord. But they need Jesus, just like you and I need Jesus. There's only one way home. For just in Verse 30, For just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now been shown mercy because of their disobedience, remember that incredible exchange, so these also now have become disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. That's incredible. That's that part there where like, there's none righteous. You know, Romans chapter 3, you and I, we have all fallen and we are all below the standard of God so that God can have mercy on us all and open the door to salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ to us all. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Paul reflects on this, goes, oh my gosh, Lord, how, how you do this is amazing. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be the glory forever. Amen. So I just want to wrap this up with, with truth ideas. Israel, non-believing Israel, has a future. And another way of putting it, I heard a a theologian I really like uh, this week say, um, thinking of Philippians 1, he said, he tweaked it a little like this, and he said, it would almost be like saying this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in Israel will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So that's it, guys. Um, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, if you'll stand, uh, I'll, I'll pray us off, and then uh, let's, let's enjoy some fellowship and Timbits over there. Oh, Lord God, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for uh, the saints gathered here. Thank you for bringing each and every one of the folks here to Banff. And Lord God, thank you for giving us your, your perfect word. Thank you for the exciting hope for your people in the end. And we pray, Jesus, that, uh, that you would use us well, God, that we would share you, Lord, with, with any Jewish person we ever come across and any Gentile we ever come across, Lord. May you use our lives powerfully, Lord, to bring glory to you. And uh, Jesus Christ, we love you. We need you. Uh, be with, with us this week, God. And in your name we pray. Amen. All right, have a great day, guys.